similarly like is realizing how much I've said yes to and like how much a part of my being that is just like wanting to say yes and wanting to be evolved and then you get those moments of realizing like oh my gosh like how did I said yes to so many things do I have like the time to do it and it's just we gotta go slowly you know the Japanese saying is skoshizitsu little by little just focus on one thing at a time you know I think that there's like, you know, when people get involved in uh, healing work or regenerative work, they get, especially when they're like totally new to it, they're like, there's so much, there's so much. Or they like find one thing and they like fall into it. But then over time, or maybe even initially, you really discover that like everything um, is is deeply connected. and, And it's almost like, it's almost like we're trying to always get to those deeper connections through the mediums that we're choosing. And, 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 and when we switch mediums, people are like, oh, that didn't serve me. And it's like, oh, actually, like, you just refined what, like, your lens through that. And now, you know what I mean? Yeah, and sometimes it's not a clear process, you know? Sometimes it's like you have to go through those questions or those mediums that it's maybe not what you're going to focus on for your whole life or focus on for a period of time, but it, it taught you something. So just try, you know, I, I just try and trust that the decisions I've made are leading me to the right place. Even if at the time it feels like, Oh, why did I spend a year of my life doing that? You know, or whatever it is. Hopefully it's not that long. Hopefully it's a little less time. It happens a little more rapidly, but it's hard to say, you know, I feel that right now just with like the mushroom business and then um, like festival organization where the group that organized the Telluride Mushroom Festival is kind of now splitting off and starting to create its own organization for organizing festivals and the work down here in Ecuador and just, you know, realizing the scale and how much is needed down here. Um, And then all these thoughts of like, you know, Maddie and I wanted to form like a soil analytics business this year. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, how many things am I doing? Like, you know, and I think for me, sometimes it helps like having a structure being like, okay, like I'm going to give myself a certain number of hours each day, depending on what I have going, just to like not think about it as much as I can, you know, cause people who are involved and impassioned, it's like these thoughts are always turning in our mind, but it's good. Cause sometimes the relaxation period, that's when the inspiration comes. You know, I find like down here, I'm chilling out in the hammock in the evening, just trying to relax. And then all of a sudden these ideas start flooding in. So we're figuring it out. (laughs) Do you ever do that thing where you're meditating and then you leave the meditation state and you write down what you're thinking about? Yeah, I do. I feel like, you know, certain people are like, oh, well, that's like, taking you away from like meditation space but for me I think it's always been hard just to like sit quietly and just focus on my breath like I enjoy the times when I can do that but usually there's so much going on through my mind when I give like you said when I give myself that opportunity usually an idea pops up and so I'll break out of the space and write it down you know and that's kind of I've used meditation I think more for like functionality in my work sometimes than like just the pure intention behind meditation which is to quiet the mind i don't know if it's good or bad it's just you know it's what i've been doing yeah i think a lot of us are doing that um i think a lot of us have realized that um we do our best work from that state yeah yeah i mean because there's there's a lot of work to be done you know and there's this feeling of haste too you know, it's like, okay, these things have been going on for a long time. And like, there's data to suggest that, you know, we're already at some kind of like peak level. So we're like, we got to do this right now. Like, let's get people doing it. You know, I've had that come up a lot with being down here and just seeing the severity of the contamination and, you know, the cyclical discussion that happens in micromediation where people are like, look at a site and then realize like, oh wait, there's so many more variables than we thought of. We just gotta stop, take a step back and only collect data. 
which is important. It's really important. It's like, we need that data, but also the feeling of like, for me, like these people have been dealing with this contamination for 50 years and it's already providing increased cancer rates, increased illnesses, lower quality of drinking water. And like, you know, we need to collect that data and we just need to start doing stuff, you know? It's like both worlds. I think about it like, you know, the difference between just <clears throat> reading a book or doing something, you know? And I always like to find the balance, but in the end, I'd, if I had to choose one, I'd rather just do it, you know, have that kinesthetic experience. It's like if you just keep the information wrapped up in the ivory tower, and you never integrate it into, you know, reality, into someone's life. And like humans evolve just by doing things, observing, and yeah, making those connections. Yeah, and I think that that catches up to us because of our, you know, integrity. We end up not respecting ourselves, <coughs> ourselves yeah. because we don't, we don't actually do the things that we're, you know, up in our head thinking about and writing down and planning and, and feeling so good that we like come up with solutions that catches up to people, you know, and, and then the, it steals their energy and then they can't accomplish what they dreamed of in the first place. Yeah. I mean, we see that so much in academia, like, you know, people just caught, get caught up in the data collection and information seeking. And then they find that they're like 60 years old and they're like, what did I like? I've, you know, almost like been in school this whole time, but like, what did I actually do? You know, so that's a balance. Like I know that I usually come from the just do it first and that's how I've been most of my life. And so now I'm starting to like want to bring it back into balance and spend a little bit more time, like researching, collecting data. But I feel like I'll always be a person who's like more interested in like doing it opposed to just reading about it. That's awesome. <laughs> so, uh, I missed your laugh. You laugh. Oh, well, that's, thank you so much. <laughs> Can you tell us some about, uh, tell us about these projects? The ones down here and at Amisa, down in Ecuador? Sure. And then, and then also about, about the mushroom business, about uh, what your plans are. I mean, it's not just local, right? It's, it's totally online and everyone can access it, right? Yeah. So with the business Myco Uprisal, you know, right now we are primarily like a spawn producer or a seed company, you know, is a nice metaphor for what we do. So we're producing sawdust spawn and sawdust kits for hobbyist cultivators to just take home and fruit a couple pounds of mushrooms or for more serious cultivators uh, to utilize the mycelium, expand it and start their own, um, you know, production facility or production operation. And so we also do a lot of teaching and traveling around at different festivals. So our scope is pretty wide. We'll go to places like Colorado, like New York for these mycology gatherings and teach and have our products with us and kind of just like expand the scope and the inspiration to lots of people. And it's one thing, you know, it's like a lot of the potency I see in my work is just inspiring people you know, and getting people doing these things and telling them like, you know, you don't need to have a college degree. I dropped out of college, you know, I just started cultivating and made lots of trials and errors and, you know, finally found systems that work. Um, and we do have an online presence. It's definitely like, I think we could always do better, you know, make websites better. It's not my forte necessarily. Um, we have an Etsy site online and a really underdeveloped WordPress site. Um, but we're in the process right now of developing a new web presence so we can have more information, more videos, more online training, similar to the work that, that you're doing with the Advanced Permaculture Student Online too. Um, yeah, and we, um, you know, right now, it's like there's a lot that we want to do. Sometimes it's really hard to decide which route to go, and you're like, I want to do everything, but the reality is you don't have time and a day to do everything you want to do. Um, so being a spawn producer is something we're really focused on continuing, you know, and making it easier for people to, you know, have those successes. You know, if we can send one person home with a kit and they grow mushrooms, and they find that inspiration. It's like we've affected that change in someone, you know, and maybe inspired them to continue down that path. And maybe, you know, they're going to inspire more people. And it's like, 
yeah, it's just exponential growth, kind of like what the mushrooms are doing all the time. Um, but I have a lot of, I, along with my microscopy work, I'm very intrigued in mycorrhizal mushrooms. So experimenting with growing mycorrhizal inoculant. And that's kind of like my focus uh, moving forward in the business. Teaching, we want it to be, you know, the location in Washington. We want it to be a research center where interns and volunteers can come and learn so they can take it back to their communities and start to replicate this work. Because we know that we just, we need more people doing it. You know, if we're going to, we're going to make the change we want to see rapidly. We need more people experimenting and just trying things. So, yeah, it's, there's, a, there's a lot we want to do. I mean, these next years are really focusing on, like, the foundation building and getting a good, successful business model so that we have more space to be able to do those, you know, more experimental projects, which, you know, probably aren't going to have a payoff right off the bat, you know? So it's like we're kind of in that early stage succession where we're like building the soil, accumulating nutrients, and getting ready for that, you know, burst of energy, raising of the canopy. Um, so yeah, there's a lot going on there. Amisachu is the organization, it's the place I'm at right now. Um, essentially, just a brief history, um, Achilles, who is the owner of the property. He used to work for Chevron in Texaco. Um, he was an engineer for Chevron Texaco down here in their oil resource extraction. Um, and, you know, he was working for them for a while and he started to see the effects and the devastation that was being caused on his community, his people. And so he quit and he took his money and he invested in this piece of land, which is 30 hectares. It's a pretty big piece of land. And it was grass. And he just started planting trees indigenous species, species that had come from elsewhere, like plantains and bananas. Um, and it's 12 years later, and now we're here in this jungle. I mean, it's so amazing to be here and, and look at the abundance of life and realize that this was all planted. You know, it was one of the most inspiring things being here. Like, this is a, this is a forest. You know, most people would walk through this and be like, oh, yeah, this is just natural. It's just spawned, like, out of natural succession. Um, but so he kind of like established, established the space, um, for this project to continue. Um, it's, that was 12 years ago. And Lexi, who's kind of the leader of Amisachu, is who I met and brought me down here. Um, she's been here for about four years. Achilles' son, Luis and Lexi got married and they built their house here. Um, and Lexi was originally a part of the Amazon micro renewal project. Um, and so she wanted to continue that work, but she came about it from a different way. You know, originally the project came down here being like, we have all these solutions. We'll grow oyster mushrooms on the oil and everything's going to be fine. And realizing that the situation is more complex than that. Um, but Lexi stayed and made her focus integrating with the local community and starting to listen to the local community um, about what they wanted and like what kind of reparations were needed. And so her focus has really been on training mushroom cultivators down here um, and starting to kind of like build the, the network of people who understand mushroom cultivation. You know, when she first came down here and was telling people like, oh, I want to like grow mushrooms, people were like, it's not possible. Like you can't do it here. The Amazon's too hot. It's too humid. Mushrooms won't grow here. Um, and so she's been in the process of trying to convince people and showing people over the last two years specifically that it is possible. And so she's got a laboratory down here, incubation rooms, fruiting rooms. We just finished the third one specifically for reishi. Um, and so it's, it's a lot of it is training. So we're training and capacity building like for the local community, um, a local agroecology center uh, and our interns. And so like today, they're down at the lab, they're prepping sawdust, they're inoculating bags. Um, and so in tandem with that, we're starting to do specific research towards the potential of breaking down petroleum hydrocarbons with mushrooms. And so we're kind of in the beginning stages of that. Right now, a lot of it is just going out and identifying and collecting and preserving indigenous fungal specimens, you know, um, because we have all these organisms like oysters and turkey tail that have been shown to have, you know, pretty good potential for breaking down petroleum hydrocarbons, um, but they're not necessarily indigenous to the, this environment. 
and they may not do as well as the organisms that live down here, that evolve down here. Um, and so right now we're in the space of finding them, trying to identify them, and seeing if we can bring them into the laboratory. So a lot of what I've been doing down here is developing protocols for cloning mushrooms. Um, and then once we get these cultures into the lab, we have a clean culture, then we start testing for thresholds. So we're giving them specific concentrations of the contaminant that we want them to break down and just starting to see how they react um, to those contaminants. You know, some of them will not want to grow into it. They don't like it. Um, others start to utilize it as food. Um, and so that's kind of the work, a major part of the work that's going on here at the research station. There's also um, UDAPT, which is the Union of Affected Peoples by Chevron in Texaco. And so they're the ones about 30 years ago, indigenous communities gathered together to take Chevron and Texaco to court over what they did uh, down here. Just, I mean, the amazing amount of extraction, I mean, billions of gallons of oil and with really unsustainable practices. Uh, I mean, they, you know, basically instead of taking the excess uh, formation water, which is the water they use to drill oil wells, which has all kinds of chemicals, it has petroleum, it has heavy metals from the process. Um, there was a technique developed where you re-inject that wastewater back down into the oil pocket once it's done. Um, and while that's not necessarily best practice, it reduces the leaching potential. But instead, Chevron Texaco just dug open pits and poured this, you know, toxic sludge in these open pits in a way where it could, you know, with the amount of rains down here, these things are leaching out into water sources. And so UDAPT um, took Chevron Texaco to court and has been fighting in court for 30 years, you know, and they won um in a case in new york um but chevron texaco has thousands of lawyers they've been figuring out how to get around loopholes and now they've actually opened up a rico case against udapt um which is pretty crazy because that's like law that they use for mafias and drug cartels um and it's it's crazy i mean you know the fact that there are just like no reparations, there's no support from these companies that came in. Right now, one thing that's coming up in the next uh, month is the first environmental reparations committee. So it's the first time that um, these community leaders from all of these indigenous tribes are coming together in one place to talk about what they need and what they want and what can be done about um, this toxicity. Um, and so we're going to be talking about how to produce medicinal mushrooms for, you know, just to, to start supporting the bodies of the people that are already dealing with increased cancer rates and also bioremediation techniques. And as a part of that assembly, um, a specific amount of the people are going to continue in field remediation and then a, a pilot project over four to six weeks kind of testing out different biological remediation methods. Um, and we're also going to do a micromediation test plot as well. Um, so there's a lot of things going on down here. <laughs> we also distill essential oils and make all kinds of like, you know, skincare products and things like that. Uh, yeah. So, wow, that's, that's amazing. So what's the name of the site again? Cause it cut out right at that moment. Ami Sacho. Perfect. A-M-I-S-A-C-H-O. So something that, um, I mean, I've watched documentaries, I think about, I, I'm, I'm certain about this very thing, and it could be related to the people that, that you're working with. Um, do you know of a documentary that people could watch to educate them on this subject? Because I knew about those pits. Um, I wrote down Cocktail of Chemicals because... Um, when people talk about like, let's go clean up the oil, I'm like, <laughs> it's like, it's not the oil. Like, I mean, like, it's like the whole thing with Roundup. They're like, well, Roundup. And I'm like, well, it's like, there's like glyphosate, you know, they're talking about glyphosate, but Roundup is this like whole prep concoction that they never even tested. 
so it's like it's like folks don't understand the level and the like the the complexity behind things like someone was it was asking me about you know just like a blanket um how to take cities urban sewage waste and turn it ready for food and i was like you can't just like put a stamp on that one and be like, well, this is the way to do it. Yeah. Good. I mean, and I was like, well, we'd have to start at the point of, of, of everyone's home and like, like be really good about what goes into that toilet first. And, yeah. and it's like, and then we'd have to start thinking about what goes into our bodies. And then, and then it just started this whole complex conversation. And, that's why I think that a lot of these situations, a lot of these um, problems that we've been able to sum up in a documentary or, or, you know what I mean? Don't have solutions that find a 20 minute, you know, yeah. like happy ending. Yeah. Potentially has some information uh, about the situation down here. I know there have been other ones as well. So crude is one documentary. That's the one I There's watched. one is just about, yeah, I imagine that's the one a lot of people have seen that kind of got them hip to the ideas and the history of what has been yeah. going on down here. And then uh, Yasuni Man, uh, that's on Netflix? Crude was. It was, okay. And then Yasuni Man is one that hasn't come out yet, that is about to premiere. Um, and I don't, don't know much about it. There's not a lot out there, but I think it, showcases the specific relationship with the Warani people who are the most recently um, found uh, community, indigenous community out here. The Condor and the Eagle is another one. And then people can uh, check out uh, UDAP's website, which is Chevron Toxico. And that'll explain some of the history as well and give people an idea of what has been done down here and like the severity of the contamination. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. speaking about, it's much more than just like, Oh, what do we do with the oil? Cause we think about these, some of these pits and there are just so many different kinds of chemical substances, different grades of petroleum. Um, you know, it's pretty crazy. The complexity of it, you know, and, you know, there's going to be different mushrooms, different organisms that are better at doing certain things and breaking down certain contaminants. What are you seeing inside so these, these, these pits? Is there anything living? Is there any uh, bacteria? And what there are, you- are. There, there are bacteria, there are fungi, there are, you know, even like protozoa and the predator organisms, you know, there's a lot. I haven't been able to specifically identify without some kind of, you know, genetic sequencing. Um, but then you also go to some of these pits and it was interesting where when I, you know, in my mind thinking about these pits and thinking about this barren landscape and that life is starting to come back. You know, there's some of these sites that have full canopy coverage, you know, and trees have grown up. Ferns are literally growing in the pits. Mushrooms are growing out of the pits. Like, life is starting to take hold again, you know, whether or not the compounds are being broken down is, you know, a different question. I mean, everyone, you know, looks at Paul Stamets work um, with the Mattel case in Washington, bacteria, um, and also chemical remediation. And, you know, you, when you observe the piles in that study, all of the piles were, were black and stinky, you know, still visible oil, but the mushroom pile had plants starting to come back in, the mushrooms fruited, that brought insects, there were secondary fungi that started to come in. So the process of life was happening. But when you look at the data behind it of whether or not the vermilion were going down, it was inconclusive. You take a look at that study and the sampling techniques weren't very consistent so every time, you know, it was fluctuating. It was like, oh, 300 parts per million more. Um, and so, you know, life can start to come back in. You bring in more organic matter. There's more 
more space for life to go, that doesn't necessarily mean the contaminant is being broken down. So that's one thing that adds to the complexity and potentially, you know, requires more testing, more experimentation. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I know we've talked about this, um, but because there is no way, um, it's like those plants only have a few different modalities. The most common one is buffering. So they, they create a buffer, you know, with like fungi or an interface. Um, and it's that, it's, it's as they create this buffer, as fungi starts taking over the space because fungi occupies the soil and becomes a soil. And so they might be concentrating the toxins in the area that we're sampling, like into the soluble uh, areas hmm, that were, yeah, it's fascinating. And so what we see might not be actually what's going on. So what I was saying okay. is that like plants can like buffer or they can like transport, right? So they can like shuttle that stuff yeah. into like the air a lot of times that like, like the halogenated carbons, they're like, a lot of these plants, these, you know, riparian plants are literally just gassing it off. And then you have yeah. you know, like the hemp rat where they're embodying it, right? And then you have like toxic. Uh -huh. So, but the most common is, is buffering. And that's primarily a fungal, you know, process, right? Them creating a protective layer, shielding, and then transforming that, you know, negative mm -hmm. into positive. And so I'm wondering, yeah. I'm wondering if we could do the AMF protocol, or you probably already are, but like that idea of like taking a plant from that situation and then promoting it, you know, in, in pots or something like that and doing the same, the same sort of um, scaling up that we would do with like AMF and then inoculating that into another site where it hasn't had those organisms, hasn't had that kind of succession of it, and seeing if you we can get similar results kind of reminds me of like the whole um fact that we are now doing this with humans where we're taking good gut life and good digestive you know the microbiology and we're literally putting it into another person i also yeah here if you're kissing someone with bad teeth they're gonna um affect your teeth that's very Totally. Biologically based. <laughs> Most definitely. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, that protocol is, is not something we're currently doing, but something we want to explore, you know? And it's one thing that, like, one thing to think about, like, a lot of this buffering, you know, it, like, happens, there's so many variables involved in it. Like, a simple change in pH of the soil can make something like a metal that was buffered and was inert all of a sudden, like a change in pH, a change in the microbiology, and then it's mobile again. You know, then it has access to be able to be uptaken and transferred to a new environment. Um, so the complexity behind it all is, you know, in some ways overwhelming. I think for me, it's just like intriguing. It's like there's, there's so much work to be done. And I think, yeah, going through both approaches, like the experimentation um, and tracking these variables, trying to get an idea of these variables. Um, but also just working with what we know already, like choosing the fungi that are white rot fungi that we know and break down potentially these, these, you know, these hydrocarbons, um, and just getting more like, critical information on, on that, you know, it's like, and something that, you know, people can start to do in their communities. I mean, you can simply, you know, you can use simple methods to determine if the situation maybe is getting better, like bioassays, you know. Um, you take a certain sensitive plant and you try and grow it in the contamination, you know, obviously seeing that it's, it's not working most of the time, depending on the resiliency of the plant. And then you do that same thing after you've tried to remediate the pile. Um, and, you know, baseline people generally see more success, increased germination rates after you've brought in more organic matter, brought in some organisms um, like, you know, the oyster mushroom um, that starts to break down those chains. But it's really a, a succession, you know. Um, it's like you can't just use that one organism. You know, a lot of people, a lot of researchers are starting to talk about like, 
you know, the bacteria also play a part. And some role that these fungi do is maybe provide housing or actually are a carrier for the bacteria that are really breaking down the, you know, the simpler chains into even simpler and simpler chains and hopefully getting to the point where, you know, it's all organic. It's all just, you know, simple carbon. Um, you know, how far that goes is, is yet to be seen. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, accumulation with plants, like we know a lot of plants that will pull up heavy metals into their bodies. Um, and what to do with it is still kind of a big question. It's like, what do we do with the heavy metals once they're in the plant? You know, right now, the best protocol seems to like remove it from the site and put it in a container where it can no longer leach. Um, <clears throat> that's a big thing. Like, you know, just stopping the flow of the contaminant is one of the first steps, you know, it's like we would come into these sites and be like, okay, let's try to input some mushrooms into here. But during that process where you're researching, you're still going to have leaching into water sources potentially. Um, you know, so the first step is to, you know, contain it, you know, it, it becomes hard when you start to think about these massive pits that are meters deep, you know, with petroleum. Um, it's like some of these pits were like, you know, six meters deep and it's just this anaerobic sludge. Um, and you know, while doing things in situ ideally is better because it requires less excavation, less energy, less money. Um, but it, you know, you start to realize the reality of like, okay, we just need to contain it. But then how do you do that at over a thousand sites in the Amazon? where some of these sites have jungle growing around them. So in order to even do that, you would have to cause more devastation and more destruction, you know? Um, yeah, there's, there's, so much, there's so much complexity to it. But I think oftentimes that complexity really like stops people from experimenting and just trying things. But that's just something, you know, we need more of, you know? It's like there are so many of these sites, not only down here, but like everywhere in the world. And... You know, there's not enough time just to be like, oh, well, well, more data is needed. Um, it's one thing that comes up for me a lot. You know, it always, so much of this always comes down to how we test for things. And, yeah. And when, when I think about, you know, how there's contamination present when we test, but somehow there's fungi and somehow there's this, when we really look at it closely, Mycelium, by its very nature, is dendritic. It travels. And mm -hmm. so, by its very nature, it's not like this... Um, it's, it's not um, occupying every single space of every single you know, particle. It's traveling through, which implies that there are pockets where it's left untouched. And so, this idea of being a soil test and being like, oh, there's still contaminants in here. But the mycelium could, but when we break up the soil, we're actually like, it's like when we have cancer and people do a biopsy, they're breaking the actual barrier that our bodies have created to contain the situation. And, yeah. and then we're spreading it and then having it spread around our bodies. That's what a doctor's told me about. That's what, we've experienced yeah so so it's really it's really wild when we do this testing um it, it, if possible i mean if we really wanted to do things it would have to be in situ it would have to be like being able to map like maybe through uh bioelectricity but three-dimensionally map the the mycelium in the soil and then at the same time, like with like maybe the bionutrient meter or something like that, um, yeah, but you'd need light down there because that's a light meter. Um, yeah, totally. So you think about the bottom of some of these pits, like there's, you know, it's like totally anaerobic, no light entering into it. And like, you know, the, the organisms that you would use at one level of the pit would be totally different than the organisms you would use up at the surface. What about EM? I know that's going to be the number one question you're going to that we're going to get. You know, and they like when they watch this, they're going to be like, "But what about EM? That's the solution, you guys." 
Totally. I mean, that came into my mind when I first saw these pits of like, how am I going to convince an aerobic organism to live in these pits? Like what incentive is there in these pits? Um, but then looking at the potential of something like EM where, you know, that could even be a, an environment where it wanted to live, um, you know, or at least was capable, like its threshold level will be higher than most of the, the aerobic organisms. Um, and so that's something we're going to be experimenting with. You know, it's one of the first things I did when getting down here was starting the culture. Um, we have it on milk now and the curds are separating. So yeah, that's like, you know, the more I, the more I look into it, it's like, we're going to need all of these organisms. We're going to need the bacteria aerobic and anaerobic and the facultative anaerobes. You know, we need the primary decomposers, the saprophytic mushrooms, you know, we also start to see that mycorrhizal mushrooms, I mean, there's been plenty of research done down here, like specific mycorrhizal and soil fungi that don't even have fruiting bodies are very effective at breaking down these contaminants, sometimes more effective than something we think about like the oyster mushroom. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of work to be done. But e, I mean, EM, especially with Quatamux, uh, you know, observations of the, you know, purple non-sulfur bacteria and being able to put these like enzymes and glues around things like heavy metals, you know, to potentially keep them from being inert or to keep them inert. Um, the potential for that is amazing. Whether or not they can live in such heavy toxicity um, is a question we're going to explore um, and start to do bioassays simply with, you know, the EM, the lactobacillus, cocobacillus, purple non-sulfur bacteria, um, and has yet to be seen. You know, what are their threshold levels? What do they like to live in? Um, you know, so you, you look at these pits and you're like, okay, it's so much more complex to try and do it in situation. So, the, you know, one of the reactions is like, okay, well, let's, let's take the contaminant out. But then you're spreading the potential contamination and especially in a place, you know, down here where there isn't much incentive and funding to necessarily like do it in the best way. Like there's not a lot of money. So like you don't have the, you know, the ideal protocols to contain all of these things from leaching. So like, you know, the idea of, of expanding the zone of contamination, it's like while that may make the process a little bit easier, it's not necessarily helping. Um, that's you know. so fascinating. You know, whenever I deal with a problem, I always look at the opposite, right? And so, or go back to the beginning. And so I'm like, well, the state that the oil was in, that the crude oil was in, was, A, it was, you know, deeper in the ground. Uh, but it was, but it was, it was more of like a polymerized, you know, state. Um, it wasn't in a, in such a like a leaching, you know. Uh, yeah. So if there was a way that we could we could uh, like polymerize these substances because that's essentially what we're doing or imitating when we're trying to do the organic matter, trying to do the EM. We're trying to raise these colloids, these interstitial um, gels in the soil to just slow it down and put it in essentially it's not out of the game. It's essentially in stasis. It's like yeah. a assisted ciliate or something like that. Yeah. Where if, if a fungi needed it, they literally could probably melt that, you know, that, that coating and then access it. Um, I mean, why not? I mean, they're fungi. They can do whatever they want. Um, <laughs> So, so it's really then about scale and about, yeah. about comprehending how, because it's an absurdity. That's the thing that, that is so hard to work with these things is because they're like mathematical absurdities. They're like, oh, well, that, that doesn't happen in nature. Yeah, totally. It's something that's totally like we, these concentrations never existed before humans came in and pulled all of this out of the ground and then decided just to put it in a pit, you know, open pit. So yeah, it's, it's the big question, like the scalability of all this, because we can do simple bench scale remediation tests, right? Like take mycelium in a sterilized medium, you know, and, and give it some of this oil, test it before and after, 
and see the reduction, you know, see reduction of hydrocarbons, and that gives you hope. And then you start to move to the scale of this of like, well, you know, these organisms are going to do better at certain concentrations, and you know, what other organisms do they need in order to do that, or what other organisms actually, you know, make them their job harder, you know, and actually provides competition. Do we want more food for the mushroom in the environment because you know we want them to be healthy? But in that situation, are they only going to grow on the food that is clean? Are you know are they not going to be incentivized to utilize the petroleum hydrocarbons as food? Um, and so, you know, there's there's so many things, there's so many variables to experiment with and to run tests on, and it's so much easier, and it's easier to contain in the laboratory, in bench scale experiments, but we really start need to moving it out into the field. Um, that requires more funding, you know, that, that involves more inherent risk, you know, because there's the possibility that some of these things are inert in the environment at these sites. Like some things are bound up, there's life happening. And so as soon as we start coming in and, and breaking it down or bringing in more biomass, maybe they become more mobile. Um, and so figuring out, you know, proper containment methods on site is one thing we've been thinking about. Of can we get these little test plots where, you know, where things aren't leaching, you know, on that site, gain solutions. It's like you have to observe these piles. You have to see what they're doing, what other kinds of organisms are coming in. Um, and so right now we're trying to find the closest site to this research center um, that has been contaminated um, and trying to map that out. I mean, collecting the data is like a big, you know, realization of what's going to be important of like seeing what species are growing, seeing what microorganisms are in the soil and getting a baseline with those things. Cause you know, we, you know, Lexi really wants to experiment with, with modalities of testing that are more grassroots and more low tech, you know, like what if we could identify certain soil microorganisms that give us an indication that the content of the contaminant has been reduced, you know, um, because like, you know, that's one thing in the micromediation world, like everyone's like, well, why don't you test for these things? And they're like, well, we don't have the funding to do it. It's too expensive to send these samples to a lab. And if you really want, conclusive evidence, you have to take 10 samples, you know? And so that's a big thing that's holding the, you know, the micromediation work back right now is like the funding to be able to do it. And definitely in the States, like the liability around it, where if you come in and start to do this remediation project and then something leaches into a water system, you know, or spreads, becomes more mobile, then you're all of a sudden held accountable for it. And so, you know, you know, that whole world, the political social sphere of micromediation is, you know, another thing that like, you know, it needs to be addressed and it's different everywhere you go. You know, the ability to do the work down here is a little bit easier maybe because there's, there's not as much regulation, but then the scale of it is so much, seems so much bigger. Um, and like the severity of it is so much larger. And then that brings in the question of like, you know, these people have been experiencing this for so long, like this experimentation has the possibility to even make things a little bit worse. So it's like as much as we want to move forward and just continue to do this work, it's like the balance of knowing we, we need more experiments and we need to do it slowly and, you know, with a lot of thought and intention behind it. Um, yeah. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense doing like a SIP test and treat, you know, so you take a bit out, you have the right concentration levels for it, you can remediate that and then pass it back onto the environment. But, you know, something that, that occurs to me, um, the, the in-situ, the, the in-situ microbiology there's all this potential for symbiotic behavior and more than just two, the polybiotic yeah. behavior um, that we can't actually map. We can't prove, we can't catch. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Fast, 
for yeah. uh, and it's inaccessible on top of that. And when we do Korean natural farming preps, we're kind of doing mycology outside of a sterile field. Yeah. And that opens up like a whole modulating ball of wax. And so <laughs> when we're looking, when a lot of times when we're working with, you know, these, the reason we are doing as many as possible, you said, you said 10 for testing, but when we're, we're, we're trying to experiment, I mean, how many strains of oyster are you looking at? Because um, the randomness of finding uh, and, and then the probabilities of finding the jackpot strain and then knowing how every strain has a limited viability. Yeah. Um, it just, it just opens up. It just opens up like this whole other side to the complexity that I don't think we're, ever going to be able to be like no this is the gene right this here. is the one yeah yeah totally i don't think we can crispr gun that i don't think we no. can um it's too it's modulating on too big of a level too often i mean just think of amf doing that but but it's it's so much more than that because the secession of fungi yeah all of their 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 partners in the dance um yeah i mean we're never going to be able to know all the variables or the you know the whole complexity of it you know and that's one thing where it's like we just like requires more experimentation you know we we need to just start doing it like take this work out of the laboratory out of the specific testing and petri dishes do it in a way that is safe and we spend time thinking about how to contain it so that you know the contamination doesn't spread um and, you know, I often think about like, you know, just the idea of like ecology being a self-regulating system. Like, you know, as much as I like have a scientific lens and want to find the data, I also, you know, know that there's this innate intelligence in the ecology that, you know, probably a lot of the organisms that are going to be doing the job are not going to be the ones I bring in maybe the oyster strain that I've worked on, I've trained onto this contaminant, maybe it does the first job, but then all the other organisms that start to come in, the secondary fungus, the bacteria, the plants, it's like they're really going to be continuing that work. And I could spend my entire life trying to figure out the complexity behind which plants do what and what bacteria helps make these things inert. Um, but there's a part of me that starts to begin to just want to have more trust. Um, for this self-regulating system, you know, and like, you know, the bacteria that I've observed in the pits, it's like they're living in it. They obviously can withstand that high concentration. And, you know, maybe they're already starting the process. You know, no one's done testing to see if these levels have gone down over time, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, like really with a lot of this stuff on a large scale, we start to think about containment because so many of these pits, they intentionally designed them to overflow. They put in what's called a gooseneck, where at the top of the pit, they have an outflow. Um, and that's because there's so much rain down here that they, you know, it's like that's another variable. It's like the amount of rain. It's like how do you stop these things from leaching into the environment? Even if you didn't have a gooseneck, you know, at a certain point, it's just going to overflow out, you know, but then you see these goosenecks and they're directed right down into a stream. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's like right off the bat, it's like, you know, we start to think about mycofiltration and like, okay, it's like, we know at least some of these mushrooms can capture some of these things, maybe not do the whole job, but at least starting that process, you know, it's like, we got to start somewhere. You know, we can't just stay in the ivory tower of knowledge. And we can't just look for the, ma the you know, the, the magic silver bullet. No. I, I think that, that this, is the, this is the hardest thing for our current, our current culture is to start without the solution. Yeah. To make change with faith in the unknown. Yeah. Most definitely. Yeah. And it's, it, it can, it's hard, you know, it can be really hard, especially when thinking about micromediation, just like the risk involved, you know, but 
spending, you know, spending years just researching things in a lab is not going to help the situation down here is not going to help the people, you know? So it's possible, you know, we're going to make mistakes that in certain sites, things are going to become a little bit more mobile, but that is going to contribute to like the understanding and our ability to do this work in the future. Um, and so I, you know, it's like we've been having this discussion over the last two weeks of like, okay, what things do we test for this, this, and this. And we're just getting to the point of like, we just need to start, you know, doing this in the field, you know, because what you do in the laboratory, you can have success in the laboratory. And as soon as you bring it out into the field, all the variables are different, you know? So if you really want to have something that works, you're going to need to spend that time in the field, you know? Um, and simply just like, you know, one of the first steps is observing the succession, I think, of some of these piles. You know, one project we're going to start working on um, right off the bat is just kind of like a concentration mix of like, okay, we're going to take species that we're training in the laboratory, grow them out into bulk substrate, and mix them in with different ratios of the contaminant, and then just spend time observing it, you know? How do they perform with a specific concentration? What other organisms start to come in? The other fungi that start to come in, okay, well, let's look at those. Let's take them into the laboratory and start to train their threshold, see how they interact with the contaminant, you know? Because it's like, I don't know, it's like we know like through a permaculture lens, like the observation and the interaction, that's where like the juiciness of ecology is found. It's like you can't make an experiment in a lab and expect it to work the same way out in the world, you know? So if any of this information is going to be replicable, you know, we got to do it in the real world, you know? And just starting somewhere, you know, that's why I like encourage people in the micromediation world who like want to clean up these sites. I'm like, you know, take your time, do your research, um, but start doing it, you know? Don't let it wait three, five, ten years, you know. Let's just start doing it. Let's see. I absolutely agree. I feel like um, that's been a lot of my secret uh, with getting stuff done is that it's like I feel like no one else is doing the work. Um, and I feel like people go, so many people in our culture and in permaculture and the regenerative community and yeah, even maybe in mycology, this is the case. I don't know. But um, they look out in the world and they go, oh, that's wrong. Oh, that's wrong. Oh, that should be better. And it's like, <laughs> if you feel that way, you are the one to make it better. Yeah. And now is the time to do those things, to just start. And people will be like, no, no, you're doing it wrong. And you're like, well, how would you do it right? How would you do it right? And they're right. like, oh, well, we need years more of research to figure that out. And you're like, what? Like, no, like, okay, you got to interact. Those ones you disregard, but it's every once in a while, you know, the one out of a hundred, they're like, well, you need this. And you're like, I do need that. I do. Thank you. Yeah. You get, you know, you know, you get more. And so, yeah, yeah. I feel like it's, it's about following that enthusiastic energy that connection to our passion, to real healing, and to making making a, that integrity difference, so that we're doing something that at the end of the day we're like, I did it. Yeah, it's like it's like I I was a I was a mess, <laughs> but halfway through I started figuring it out. You know what I mean? Like yeah. like we have to get to that point where we're like we're okay with failing because the goal is more important than the failures along the way to arrive there. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, you know, I, that's how I started cultivating. Like I didn't have any degree, you know, I'd read some books, but just started it and had so many failures, but that's, that's what teaches you. Like you said, like the, the potential gain for what we can understand is so great. And like, we're not going to, we're not going to do this work if we spend the next hundred years in the laboratory. Like, you know, it's not, we're not potentially going to do it fast enough, you know, or with enough integrity. And so finding the ways to safely do it, um, in our communities. And there's plenty of people who are starting. I mean, people like Nancy Clem, 
you know, Danielle Stevenson, you know, putting off the, these showcases of like, you know, you have lead in your soil in a garden area and you want to grow food and you need to reduce the amount of lead below toxicity level. Well, we know that like sunflower, something that's really easy to grow helps pull lead out of the soil. And if you have a little bit of funding, you know, you can either, even measure the testing, you know, before and after and, and see that you are making this change. I think also more people just need those successes, you know, even if it's not the most conclusive data there, you know, if you can at least see that the abundance of life is starting to come back, that maybe you drop the toxicity level a little bit, you know, that gives you hope, that gives you faith. There's still a solution out there. We can still do it, you know, and that propels people forward, you know, hopefully some people, you know, the failures make you regress. Um, but I think it's just like, you know, starting to teach that perspective, like you say, like the failure is like, that's what should keep you going, you know, and always like keep you curious to, you know, make your practices better, you know, hone in your skills. Um, and so that's definitely what I encourage people to do. I'm like, definitely like do it with care and intention and think about not releasing these things in, in a wider way. But at a certain point, it's like, we're already living in this toxicity. And we just, we need, need to figure it out. You know, we want to regenerate and heal these lands. So that's the I process. To you because every time <laughs> I talk to you, you make me smarter. I love it. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, thank you. I appreciate that, Matt. You too. You're making me think about lots of new things. I have one final thought. Have you tested in mapped out some of the virgin crude bacteria and fungi because there, I mean, there's so much discussion about how, you know, bacteria and fungi and like these microbi uh, microbiology that are solubilizers of metal. Yeah. And so there's, there's a lot of this, they make crystals, they make crystalline structures. I feel like we, we could get an, in, an understanding of the way that the structure was created, the way that those things are held, if, and, and maybe you could recreate some of those things by mapping what those original, no call for you, those yeah. original uh, bacteria and fungi, because it's, it's amazing how, how so many of the solutions are right in front of our face. Yeah. Uh, so, like, this year, it seems like everyone's got a solution for cancer. It's like there's all these Nobel Peace Prize winning things. And, and it's like, and so much of it is like looking at what healthy people are like. And it's like, well, it wasn't based on that. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's something, are you talking about like when you say original, like when the oil is first put out in the pits? Yeah. I mean, at this point, we don't have those sites anymore you know chevron and texaco got kicked out of ecuador mm -hmm. some time ago um and these sites have been you know i think some of the earliest ones have been sitting for at least years um and so it's something we're, we're starting to map but it also like you know right now we're in the process of mapping communities it's like because we don't have sequencing equipment you know and i can sit down and spend time with texts trying to look at morphology and at least get classifications. But, you know, with the equipment we have down here, we don't have right now the ability to test, okay, like what species of fungus is that? Like, who is it? You know? So a big thing in like, oh, go ahead. I was just thinking, I mean, like we, we have these, like when there's naturally occurring things, when there's like um, naturally occurring oil or gas that's in our water or, on our land or something there's always something that is promoting that reaction like there's bubbling yeah. up and yeah that's some there's an actor there there's a catalyst there is. yeah like we literally could figure out what makes certain sites like uh you know petrochemical sites um that were non-leaching that were next to waterways that entire time but then when we do all this stuff, we're, we're releasing it and causing all this damage. But this whole idea of polymerizing, of slowing, of containing, buffering, 
um, there might be more information waiting for us going back to the original ways that these um, geological spaces were were formed and uh, and most definitely yeah I mean I think looking you know probably at the microorganisms that are deeper in the soil you know and closer to maybe where this was held and you know there's you know probably microorganisms that were living you know in the fossilized carbon before it even got pulled out you know and so that's you know that's a huge possibility of like have we looked at those microorganisms like those are probably some of the key players for this buffering um i don't know if anyone you know has yet you know but it's something that'd be worth doing like bringing a microbiologist you know to work with some of these oil extractors and be like hey like let me get a sample of that and look at what life is there that brings up more complexity because as soon as they start drilling they're shooting down chemicals and you know all sorts of things and they're changing the variables right off the bat so it's like how do we how do we get that clear picture of those original organisms is an interesting question for me um but you know at least at least starting to do that work you know sending out the biologist with the oil company to be like hey you know let's look at this under the microscope let's you know, let's bring it to a laboratory where we can start to test what organisms these are. Um, and, you know, again, it brings up like funding for all these things. You know, it's starting to get better. We're starting to be able to find organizations that, that will fund projects like this, but it, it's still difficult. You know, um, there's not as much incentive there for the people that, you know, really have the money. Um, but that's starting to change. I mean, we see people on like the, the global scale, you know, really popular actors like Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, starting to support efforts like this. So that, that change is starting to happen. I really look forward to more funding being available for projects like this. So we can really start to just get some more like inspirational data, you know, because that's the big thing I think about, you know, and coming down here, like my ideas around how I would design experiments have been changing of like, we just, we need to set up an experiment so that there is inspiration, you know, like, cause then that's going to get people on board and seeing it's possible. They don't start to fall into that. Those like self deprecating thoughts of like, we're never going to deal with this. We might as well just forget about it and live our lives in this toxic sludge, you know? So that's where simple things like bioassays, just seeing if, you know, once you've done this remediation effort, if you can get a plant, to be more healthy, to have higher germination rates in what's left over, even if you don't have the petroleum going down, you know, you have that inspiration and that's gonna keep people moving forward. Amazing. Yeah. So where can we support this effort? Where can we donate? Where can we learn more? Oh, so amisacho.com is where you can go currently, the website, is all in Spanish. So it's in the process of being translated. Um, and so, I mean, through there, you can contact Lexi Gropper um, through that website. Her contact info is there, and she's the main one who's been down here and continuing this work. And, you know, she's really, you know, she's the one who's got the vision and has put in the time integrating with the communities here and listening to them. Um, you know, she's the one heading it up. So donations through Amisachu, amisacho.com. Um, I don't know yet if there's a specific donation button. That's one thing I got to get her to do. Um, but, you know, at least reaching out. And there's definitely going to be like into the future, there's going to be fundraisers for this. Um, you know, we have people like Jay Schindler, who runs Fungi for the People, and his partner Valerie. They're going to be organizing a fundraiser event in Eugene. We're going to be doing one in Washington. And this is really like this project right now is at like this critical mass stage, you know, where me and my friends who came down here, like we're some of the first like, you know, dedicated volunteers to come down for large amounts of time. And so it's like there's this, this building, you know, and a fruit and the spores are going to spread. Um, so keeping updated with that website, um, and just like, you know, continue to keep it in your mind that, you know, people are down here working to find solutions for this, you know, and, you know, supporting with, with donations, 
you know, starting to look for people who have those larger amounts of money who would want to support a project like this, you know, getting grant writers down here, but also just in people's communities, like just start doing this work, collecting data, documenting it very well and show people, just show people what's happening, you know, and start the conversation, you know, so we get to that critical mass point, you know, the hundred monkeys, you know, where it's like we teach enough people and all of a sudden all over the world, everyone has these ideas. It's like, that's what it's going to take. It's going to take the community. We can't work in isolation. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> <laughs>